I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom. Chicken. Pesto. Bionic. Multiple, multiple manifold meanings. I don't even have a guess on what the meaning of that middle name is, but I'm glad you're here, Tom, and I'm glad all our Futurians are here with uh, with us for another Future Quake Show, show number 299. And it's a show that starts off with a few surprises and uh, some U-turns or detours. And so it's going to be an unexpected, uh, late changing future quake show. And, mm-hmm. uh, I will go into that in just a moment, uh, about how this show is going to be different than as it was planned. But, uh, first of all, I just want to ask you, what's going on with your life, Brother Tom? There's millions of listeners hours. out there that want to know. <laughs> it's good, you know, just, it's, uh, it's, uh, increasingly, you know, um, I'm learning. You know what Paul was talking about on, uh, um, you know, in Philippians three, where he talked about forgetting what is ahead, or mm-hmm. what is behind, and looking towards what is ahead. As I look toward the high calling of Christ, I think I mis misquoted that a little bit, but you know, you mm-hmm. get the point. Okay. And um, you know, that's really been on my mind for the last week, right. and uh, just doing a lot of that stuff, and um, you know, other kooky stuff. Okay. Lots of All kookiness. Right. Well. A lot of our Futurians are on the edge of their seat and want to know what's going on. I know. Tom, tell us more. They should really, really find something <laughs> to worry about. Well, um, Starving kids in Africa or something. we got a lot of things to talk about here. And again, and we're just going to sort of play by ear a little bit. But let me just get some announcements out of the way. First of all, I want to thank um, Brother William for his donation to Future Quake which will help us keep uh, the Future Quake show running and on the air mm-hmm. online and uh, our other expenses we have. I'm still waiting for somebody to donate like $20,000 so I can go to grad school yeah. for free. You mean like, say, like a faith promise pledge or something like that? Yeah, if you, if you, pledge, if you pledge like $5, then all you have to do, do is pledge 999000 more. So do you <laughs> have any prayer clause or anything that you've like wiped your sweat off that you... Could offer for people. For I've that. got this neat hat. Yeah, you've got it a hat that looks like you should be like marching in Montgomery. It just sort of has that mid '60s look to it. Yeah, it's something like Malcolm X or Martin Luther it King. It does. It wear. looks like something like that. You know, I put it on at the at the Peace Catalyst thing after, which the, we'll talk about yeah, in a little while. Yeah. The, at that dinner, you know, yeah. Robert Hyde looked across the table and he said, "You look like one tough dude in that hat." That's what he said. Yeah. Man, I wish you'd say something like that about me. Well, it's the hat. Never it's not me. Here, put the hat yeah. on. Here. No, 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 no. Put the hat no, on. No, I don't want to put the hat put, put, on. No, put the hat I've got on. a big head. Put the, put the hat it on. It makes the hat look like it's a little teeny hat. Well, you put... You, if I look it, like Rex Harrison it, with the hat well, on? Well, you have to put it on the right way. What, like this? Is that it? Yeah, there you go. I feel like Larry Storch <laughs> in F-Troop. Actually, even though you don't have those things to offer... We do have something to offer for people who want it. Mm-hmm. Um, our, our, our brother Aaron in New York just ordered a book of Pandemonium's Engine uh, about transhumanism and <laughs> Bible prophecy in the future that I wrote part of. A big thing on prophecy thing related to Nimrod being the first transhuman super soldier. And uh, I'll get that book out to you. I'll mail it out tomorrow. So 
Aaron, well, thank you for that. If you go to the left-hand side of futurequake.com, you can see some different things we have. That book and also the book, How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century. Uh, I do some writing in that book. Yeah, both these books have other Futurians that write in there, too. Other guests, I mean, um, that have been guests on our show. Uh, they're both huge books, and you mm-hmm. get, like, 20 authors for the money. So, and it helps us uh, pay our expenses for the show. And also, uh, just another reminder, you know, we had a bunch of people that said they wanted T-shirts and other things, uh, been hounding us to do it, and now we have the site up. You We've go got up the so upper many left shirts, corner, you can't even, it's like, 60 different, whoa, ah, they're coming at you. 60 different Sunday, varieties of Sunday, shirts. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. 60 varieties of shirts. Buy this shirt. 60 designs. Woo! And, it, and for all those 60 designs, you can either get a short sleeve, long sleeve shirt, sweatshirt, hoodie, sweatshirt, yeah. whatever. Flamethrowers. Uh, <laughs> six different cups. Future quick cheeseburgers. cups, everything like that. Yep. Uh, but we haven't had Future nearly mo- the people who said they were going to buy stuff get it. And, I, you know, um, if you all really, like I said, you were interested in it, please go up and order it. I'd appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Just go to the front of futurequake.com on, on the left-hand side. Uh, by the way, I fixed those links right after you chastised me last week. In public. And I don't know what happened, but they, they were changed. You know what and, I... Uh, they you, work. You know what I said? It was funny. At our at our Peace Catalyst conference, we were talking about some of the issues that they had us in small groups. Yeah. And I said, well, you know, I do this radio show, but I kind of liken it to, like, doing theology in public. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. learning theology yeah, in public. Yeah. And yeah, everybody a, didn't know what that meant. Yeah. But, well, they didn't know anything of what we meant. So, yeah. You know. I know. It was cool, though. I had a... I had a we're going to talk about this later. Okay. I was sitting next to somebody, and she was talking about... Um, she's like, oh, well, you know, tell me what the radio show. So I told her a few things, and there was a per- person sitting next to me. Mm-hmm. You know, she got done, wasn't that interested? And he said, well, yeah, six months ago I was in really bad shape, and uh, really, really bad shape, and like, you know, mm-hmm. bad shape. And Future Quake pretty much totally fixed me up, and, you know, now I'm a completely different mm-hmm. person. And then the table went really quiet, and everybody's like staring at me. Yeah. God, I don't know what to make of this yeah. guy. Yeah. But his hat makes him look tough. Yeah, yeah, I just thank the Lord for that person. Since you're jumping into all this, do you want to just jump in and talk about this right now, rather than what we were originally going to talk with the guest about? No, let's 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 go through the guest thing and then come back to this. Yeah, once you start. Okay, all right. But anyway, go to the futurequake.com, uh, the top uh, upper left corner, where you see the pictures of the goodies for Futurequake, and just go to the Zazzle store through there. If you go through there, you'll find. An infinite number of varieties of things. You can get a doggy shirt like Pyro mm-hmm. has. It has Future Quake on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the poster is what I like the best. You can get a poster Poster's cool. of almost any size up to tw- 24 by 36 inches mm-hmm. uh, that you can actually have the murals off the Future Mobile. I know. The Future Quake socks are the ones that I'm looking after. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about what was going to happen uh, that didn't. Okay. And, you know, it's funny here. We're coming up here with the next to last show of Future Quake after seven years, and we have something like this happen. Something close to this happened a couple of times, but we were able to resolve it and do something else and then get the guests back. But um, I'm just going to be right up front and sort of explain the way things are and then maybe do something constructive out of mm-hmm. the discussion. Uh, we've had a number of our listeners for some time, and of course we have a lot of listeners that are really interested in Bible prophecy, mm-hmm. which you and I are too mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is sort of a hangout for Bible prophecy buffs. And uh, But one person that we've been requesting a number of times to have on our show is um, uh, Mr. Bill Salas. Mm-hmm. 
And Mr. Belsalis wrote a book that was probably one of the most popular books in prophecy for the last couple of years. It was called Israelistine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it basically just talked about the war preceding Gog Magog War and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it was a big seller. Um, Tom Horn may have published it. I'm not sure. But um, anyway, uh, decided, and this was like, I don't know, fall of last year. Uh, to follow up on these requests, and I extended an offer to Brother Bill to come on our show. Uh, and it turned out he had a new book coming out called Revelation Road, which was going to be the subject of our interview tonight. And um, he said, yeah, he'd like to come on. And uh, he had sent the material in, in digital format mm-hmm. uh, for me to read. And it turned out it was quite a bit of information because his concept of this book was to sort of extend his findings from Israelistine and put it in a fictional contest context between a grandfather and a grandson, a few others, that are present during the last days, or the onset of it. Mm-hmm. And then some of the things that they said happened, there were references in the other part of the book where you actually had uh, almost like footnote material, but it was like much more extensive uh, material. So it was like a fiction slash nonfiction book. And it turned out that these appendices were massive and just tons of stuff. So it was quite an undertaking to review and to get through all of it. Um, which I did. It took a while, but we had to schedule. We had guest scheduled through the end of uh, December, and so we had scheduled him at the end of January, uh, which would have been tonight, and uh, had that confirmed with him. And then um, sometime after that time, things worked out where uh, made a decision about concluding uh, Future Quake. And really what dictated the timing of when we were going to do that was to make sure that we honored this commitment tonight with Mr. Salas that we'd already made. Mm-hmm. So everything was all systems go. I got the review done, got the questions together. And, in fact, last week uh, he had contacted me since it had been a while since we spoke just to confirm everything was on uh, late last week. And uh, mm-hmm. I had asked him if he would like to have the interview questions Um ahead of time because we we do a courtesy that that other shows don't do we actually will send them in advance so people can be prepared other shows tend to sort of hit them with it when they get there and so um i went on and prepared the questions uh sent it to him i guess it was this past friday right when right as i was leaving town to go to the Mm -hmm. conference and uh i got word yesterday uh just the day before the uh conference uh and i guess i don't want to say it correctly uh uh he says um he says, Mike, I apologize, but an important personal matter has come up rendering me unavailable to come on your show. Best radio regards, Bill. And so um, I don't know what, you know, what happened. I, I had follow up an email saying, you know, is there anything we can do to help? Uh, you know, we pray about or whatever, and could we reschedule it? And so far I haven't heard back from him. So I don't know. It must be serious. Well, I don't know if it's something... You know, a serious personal thing, or he can't get back on his email or respond, or if it was the fact that it just happened right after sending the questions um, was an issue. I don't know. And since he's not heard back, I don't know. But um, that's sort of where things stood for those of you who really want to hear Bill Salas, and Mm -hmm. I did too. And I wanted to really hear him comment on the questions that I had prepared and was really looking forward to it. And with this last minute, you know, backing out basically and then not rescheduling it means we had to scramble to get something mm-hmm. else together. But what I thought since... You want I me to read po- the questions? Well, I'll I, imitate you and then no, you imitate Bill Salas. I had poured a lot of... Well, <laughs> you don't even know what Bill Salas sounds no like. No clue. Okay. Um, that was my Dr. Future impersonation. Okay, got it. Yeah, 
that's actually a better voice than me. But uh, uh, since we hadn't had somebody that was sort of a classic prophecy um, writer for some time, mm-hmm. I was looking forward to it to ask some of the kind of questions that reflected material that was directly in the book and how it reflected on a sort of a common mindset in the prophecy community that write the prophecy books, that are at the big prophecy conferences, things like this, um, how it's perceived by young people and other people on on some of the geopolitical things that are implied in some of it. So um, since I talked to you about this before, I was going to go on and just read some of these questions. Mm-hmm. And if you'd like to comment on what you think, your thoughts. In fact, if you think they're bad questions, I want you to tell me okay. too. Because um, I'll tell you what, I'll just do the. I'll just do the. No, Dr. don't Future pretend person. you're him. No, 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 I'll pretend I'm you, and you can. You, you've talked to him, so I, you know what he sounds like. Yeah, and, yeah. And I'll I be mean, Doctor Future. Neither one of us have to pretend. Well, to speak welcome for him. to Future Quick. I'm Doctor Future, and I'm here to tell you the business. Yeah. Well, you sound a lot more intelligent. Than that, <laughs> I was going to say I have it nailed, don't uh, I? But anyway, I just thought I'd uh, some of these questions reflect a little bit of what I'm chewing and mulling over. Mm-hmm. Um, now when I look at some of the work in the prophecy community, and uh, again, it's spurred directly by the content in this book. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought if you got any comments on some of my questions, again, okay. if they're really rotten ones, I want you to tell me. But here's what we would have talked about. Uh, the original uh, Tyler, he's the host of a website called Prophecy Depot. And mm-hmm. at ProcedyPoot.com, I think, author of Israelistan and his new book, Revelation Road. And the, the theme of our show was going to be a prophetic view on current events in the Middle East. And uh, first question was our standard question, you know, uh, Mr. Sal, it's great for you to join us. Since it's your first visit, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, your education and career, spiritual history? You know, like, like we, we always like to know. a professional basket weaver. I do not want you to pretend you're Mr. Salas, okay? Um, the second one uh, question was your book Israelistan has proven to be very popular and really raised your profile in the prophecy community what has been the impact of the release of this book in the prophecy community and to you because obviously I mean I even heard it talked about at, at times at the Branson conference and I'm mm-hmm. not sure if he was there or not did you happen to see him I don't think so. monitoring I didn't know uh, I think he's based out of Southern California uh, third question, judging from the prophetic research material from Israelistan that is contained in your latest book, it appears to be very conventional in its prophecy positions that align with those of the preponderance of prophecy students that embrace classic pre-trib traditional teachings, mm-hmm. which is neither good nor bad. It's just that it just, in my perception when I read it, it was pretty much consistent with, if you go to most prophecy conferences of, of most of the material there. Mm-hmm. And I said, how would your positions in prophetic events or principles differ from that of Hal Lindsey in 1970 or the idea of Isaiah 17, Psalm 83 war, followed by the Ezekiel 38-39 Gog-Magog war mm-hmm. that was espoused by authors like Peter Goodgame and others in the mid-2000s and in terms of new ground you have broken in your research? Okay. Well, do you want to comment on that? Well, you know, the reason why I'm asking that is it's a true question because... Um, and, and I have to say, I've not reviewed Israelistan. I'm going based upon that material that was translated into Revelation Road, which mm-hmm. was his latest work. But 
uh, I wasn't aware of any kind of major breakthroughs beyond what, you know, when we've talked with Peter Goodgame and mm-hmm. his work about a, a pre-war that happens from Isaiah 17 and Psalm 83 mm-hmm. that gets rid of Israel's immediate neighbors, followed by a follow-up war when they're restored, mm-hmm. and then the distant nations of, of the goat nations. Ezekiel 38, 39. <laughs> uh, no. um, uh, and so I was just very curious to know how they were different. Um, and... I don't know, maybe maybe some of our listeners would know yeah. how they're different. And then I, I said, how would you describe the concept of your latest prophecy book, Revelation Road, and what you hope to accomplish with it in a unique way? Again, I mentioned it was this weird hybrid. I would say weird. It's not a good word. It's different of of uh, a fictional storytelling, half of it, and the other half was nonfiction where you would like to go to reference it, almost like it's two books. Mm-hmm. Um Getting into the contents of your book, what was the purpose of the Marian apparition you describe in the narrative? He gets a little bit into that, Marian apparitions and, mm. like, a satanic deception and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, okay, um, this gets a little deeper here in the questions. This is, some portion of the book talks about the possibility of Americans' economic exploitation of the slaughter of the Arabs and plundering of their assets by the Israelis. In fact, the Christian character in the book justifies their focus on the financial exploitation of the judgments and the destruction of the last days by stating, quote, we have to occupy the earth and be good stewards of our finances, unquote. Do you feel this is part of the purpose of God in giving the prophetic word? And is occupying the earth used in the context of dominionist beliefs, which consider this phrase their slogan? And how would this compare to Revelation's command to, quote, get out of Babylon and not be partakers ever since? It's a legitimate question. So, you know, um, as I grasp it when I was reading it, and it was a lot to read, was that, that the teaching was that they are anticipating the slaughters, uh, the Arabs were going to get slaughtered, and it was going to create a possibility for the Israelis and the Americans to gather to go confiscate their stuff and to be able to take it and Big financially. Yeah, profit from it. Okay, next, the combat scenario in your book, uh, your book describes, is in fact initiated years previously by the United States in in Israel. This is in his narrative, okay? The United Mm -hmm. States and Israel start ahead of time by launching a covert or secret undeclared war without congressional or public approval, a cyber sneak attack on Iran, much like Japan did to the United States in World War II. Do you feel, so, you know, basically what he was saying is they're working without telling anybody, including mm-hmm. the American public, whatever, that they are basically sabotaging Iran together, which is what we see going on today. Yeah. Um, do you feel that God will view this action as virtuous and bless this unprovoked initiation of conflict regardless of the success of the outcome? So he's clear in his narrative that the U.S. and Israel in Initiate to provoke the activities by beginning to destroy the assets and, and efforts of Iran, and then they respond in kind. Um, next question. Do you perceive the prophetic wars described in your book are also types of judgments on Israel as well as their neighbors by attempting to get Israel not to focus on its military might and rather use them to try to get a remnant to turn back to God? And this was something that I didn't really pick up on from the book. There was a lot about the judgment and destruction of Arabs, but not the purpose that God had for for these wars to basically chastise Israel, mm-hmm. get them into the right relationship with him. 
Okay, uh, another question. If I bore you with this, let me know. Okay, seriously. Okay. Let me move on. No, no, no. Right. I'm just, of course, you know, okay. you know the way that I operate. You tell me something and I goof on you a little bit. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Some things I'm never change. Sorry. That's all right. Apologize. One, one act. You have to apologize. One activity I did not notice in your book about the last days was any widespread evangelical outreach of the gospel to the Muslim communities or to predominant Muslim countries by the church at large, even though God is doing a mighty work now in bringing Muslims to Christ, even in the Middle East. Why is there not an emphasis on the Christ's command to Christians to conduct the Great Commission to these people whom Christ died for in prophetic works like these, rather than looking at them as mere pawns of judgment? Hmm. Now, to be fair, while I, I saw this in Bill Salas' book, basically the whole the you know entire interest of the Christian characters was being able to watch the Muslims and others be destroyed. Like sit on the hill like Jonah. Kill, kill this, a, sort yeah. of like that, yeah. Um, that was it. But other prophecy fictional books I have read do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like the, I th- I've not gone through in depth the Left Behind books, but I think, you know, that's certainly the main interest rather than the evangelical kind of part, from my understanding. Mm-hmm. Okay. <clears throat> Your book refers to the five cities in Egypt turning to the Lord merely because the Israeli army will have destroyed them and taken over them. Now, that's what I understood from the book. That's how that was mm-hmm. fulfilled, that they turned to God, was merely because all the Muslims were killed and the Israelis were living there. Mm-hmm. It says, yet in that very passage, it says that Judah shall be a terror unto Egypt, in verse 17, mm-hmm. possibly implying Israel's terrorist acts in Egypt, like in the 1950s. And it further says that, quote, And the Egyptians I will give over unto the land of the cruel Lord, and a fierce king shall rule over them. Now, is Israel the cruel lord and fierce king? Interesting question. And that would look... Now, I, my opinion... Now, he believes that Israel is the one who takes them over. I, I would also see the Antichrist as a potential... Um, that, that, that actually they sort of stay burdened under the Antichrist reign and then they turn to the Lord. But he's saying Israel did it. So, to me, that would imply that Israel is the cruel lord and fierce king. Mm-hmm. Okay. Furthermore, while your book asserts that any righteousness exhibited in Egypt is due to the presence of the IDF, uh, yet the same passage says specifically of the Egyptian people, they shall cry unto the Lord because of the oppressors, and he shall send them a savior, and a great one, and he shall deliver them. In verse 20. And also, the Egyptians shall know the Lord in that day, and shall do sacrifice and oblation. Yea, they shall vow a vow unto the Lord, and shall perform it. In verse 21, also says, The Lord shall smite Egypt, he shall smite and heal it, and they shall return to the Lord, and he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. In verse 22, and he says that they in Syria, along with Israel, shall be a blessing in the land, and that God will call Egypt my people, and Syria the work of my hands. In verse 25, okay? Mm. The people, I mean, I hope our listeners are aware of that. That's in uh, verse 25 uh, of, of that passage. That uh, Egypt is called my people, and Syria the work of my hands. By broad-brushing all Middle Easterners who are not Israeli as evil enemies merely to be destroyed, do we faithfully represent God's real revealed prophetic plan for them as evidence here in Scripture and rather slander our future brethren? Is this the real reason these two nations do not participate in the Gog-Magog war? Interesting question. In other words, they may be on, on God's side, at that time, that's why their names aren't mentioned in Gog Magog. 
after this passage is fulfilled? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but yeah. just asking. Mm-hmm. Next question. He says, your, uh, I say, your, your book speaks a lot about Islam and Muslim movements as being the genesis of much of the nefarious activity, both referred to historically and in the future. However, it does not mention historical facts that groups like Muslim Brotherhood were financed throughout the 20th century by the British MI6 and then CIA to offset secular Arab independence movements, just like Israel with Hamas to counter the PLO. It seems like showing the role Western intelligence has in controlling these groups should have a prominent role in showing their actions in terror as proxies. What do you think? Okay, another question for him. The next was, some quotes from your book are, there are no such things as a moderate Muslim, and Arabs do not want peace. Even though examples like Anwar Sadat and countless examples of moderate, peaceful Muslims that our own Christian missionaries work with and report about might challenge those broad generalizations about over one billion people on the planet, do you think that these statements of general contempt toward people groups by our evangelical leaders can lead American Christians to breed a general hatred and fear of these people the very people we are supposed to love and reach out to with the gospel. Okay, the next question. Uh, Jeez. Well, what? I what, mean, you're, your you're so right on. It's it's like all the questions that I wish I would ask. Well, I mean, I, if you have any comment on them, just, you know. I think these they're are very the, good questions, and, and these, I wish somebody would stand up and answer them. Okay. Well, these are the questions that really I came up with just while reading the narrative of, of Bill's book. But I concede that these questions go even further to other prophecy. And he, Bill could not answer for other prophecy people just uh, himself. But I, I would like to have someone who, you know, is a prominent member of the prophecy community answer Maybe these. Maybe you need to just put those questions up somewhere and let somebody, let a prophecy, a prominent member of the prophecy community take a shot at it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. <clears throat> Uh, would you like me to continue or not? Mm-hmm. We're going to move on. Okay. I don't want to take up all our time. No, no, it's good. It says, in your book, you state, quote, a Jew and a Christian had found common ground by facing the shared enemy of Islamic fundamentalism, unquote. However, where I could see that pro-war hawks in both America and Israel would have political interest in promoting an ideological geopolitical struggle with traditional Islamic states and promote more preemptive wars to neutralize their threat to Western economic and overall supremacy in the world, it seems to me that Christians are not supposed to have such enemies as Jews are want to do, but rather love your enemies and bless them that persecute you. Jews, however, have not yet submitted to such commands of Christ, and in fact most a- Israelis are atheists, uh, which would make an equal yoking, you know, of our commonality. Mm-hmm. And those who are most religious there even question the legitimacy of a Zionist state not established by the Messiah. Romans 11:28 says their real enemy is the gospel, as opposed to Muslims. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's Paul speaking about the Jews. That their enemy is the gospel. Some people don't trust him. Well, that's true. Uh, although due to election, a remnant will be saved when they embrace Jesus. And I, and I do believe that. Furthermore, since Muslims, although not having a saving faith per se, yet highly regard Jesus as a great prophet that is sinless, born of a virgin, and shall return again, is much more favorable than the deplorable teaching of modern Judaism regarding Jesus, should we not take the bait from secular political Judaism and make Muslims our enemy, but rather seek to lead Muslims, Jews, and everyone to Christ and leave the warring to Satan and his minions, the kings of the earth? Hmm. 
Again, Good any, questions. Any thoughts you have? Um, next, your book shows that Israel will be actively opposed by Russia, akin to a Cold War interpretation of prophecy associating Russia with, quote, Rosh, a Hebrew word for head elsewhere in Scripture, suggesting they will be opposed by other superpowers. Is this consistent with recent history, where communist Russia was closely aligned with Zionist leaders in their early days, and Israel now does regular business with communist China, even giving them critical missile technology that the United States had provided Israel? Mm-hmm. So this assu- assumption that China and Russia would be against Israel, um, is that really consistent with what we've seen in history? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, if, if it's not, how do you get around that? You know, there's, you know. So, is it prophecy or is it Cold War mindset, basically? Mm-hmm. Um, America is shown in your book. I'm, I'm almost near the end here. Mm-hmm. America is shown in your book in the future as suffering from Muslim terrorism and assisting Israel in some other ba- in some form in their battles. In reality, do you think these future battles could be more like the last prophetically significant Mideast War, the six, 1967 Six Day War? where an American ship, the USS Liberty, was attacked by Israeli jets and torpedo boats over two hours, killing dozens of U.S. servicemen and wounding hundreds, including machine-gunning life rafts, apparently with the collusion of the U.S. President and Secretary of Defense, who, who had already sent aircraft with nukes to Cairo to blame for the attack, according to congressional testimony. I mean, that's that's a precedent we have in a yeah, sure. pr- you know, significant profession. Yeah, the- there was, well, the American casualties that. were due to yeah. Jewish army attacks and yeah. not Israeli army, excuse mm-hmm. me. Um, do you think American involvement in these future wars will continue the efforts of the American government during the current war on terror to take away rights from American citizens, including indefinite detainment without trials or charging of crimes, illegal search and seizure without warrants, and rendition of people deemed enemies by political figures without accountability? as is generally supported by evangelicals today. Mm-hmm. By offering Israel guns and money, largely with the influence of American evangelicals, does America risk becoming the, quote, broken reed of Egypt that God warned Israel about before the exile not to rely upon? Because these geopolitical actions were intended then to chastise Israel to return to him, and we know in the future Israel must also be surrounded by their enemies before they will turn to Christ for rescue? By offering Israel a secular military alternative of protection to them turning to their Messiah, do we, in effect, and this gets to your Jonah comment here, do we, in effect, stand in the way of the hand of God and delay them on their difficult path to redemption or serve as the gourd to the Jewish representative Jonah who protected him from the heat from God while he waited for his enemies to be destroyed, requiring God to send a worm to eliminate it so God could finally make Jonah uncomfortable enough to get his attention, as he desires for Israel. Do you think the actions of Christians espousing the pre-trib position, suggesting that people can accept Christ after the rapture, as hinted at in your book, possibly risk furthering a terrible deception if it turns out that the rapture occurs later than speculated, and the, quote, tribulation saints of Revelation are in fact those prior to the rapture, and that conversions may not be a reality after the rapture itself, thereby dooming people who willingly delay to a false hope. Uh, my last question here. Um, again, if you have any thoughts on this, let me know. As a good pro- questions. As a prominent person in American evangelical prophecy circles, 
Are you concerned that most younger Christians are not buying into the Cold War dueling ideologies, political mindset that popular prophecy teachers interpret their prophetic views through, albeit consciously or not, and tend not to embrace the conservative politics and American exceptionalism unwaveringly without question, and since rejecting the political goals of most prophecy teaching may even reject the timeless nonpartisan quality of the biblical prophetic record? Are you, are you concerned that most young people recognize most prophecy teaching today as more of a geopolitical worldview than a biblical one and rather desire a God's eye perspective versus a nationalistic ideological one? Great question. And then I said, can our listeners, how can they get their books and stay abreast of your writing? Mm-hmm. So that was what we were going to talk about. Had we done what I thought we were going to do 24 hours ago, roughly 24 hours ago. And... Uh, you know, I'd I'd really like to know more about this, and, and uh, they're probably really good answers to this. But um, you know, maybe some of these questions, some of our listeners who are prophecy buffs like you and me, can ask some of our prophecy celebrities mm-hmm. what they think about some things like this. And and again, there may be excellent answers, and we'd be the wiser to know. But I'm gonna leave it at that. That was our interview for tonight. Thank you for participating. Uh, <laughs> you 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 like anything you'd like to add to that? No. What you would have asked about? Uh, I, I think you really covered it quite well. You know, I, I thought especially interesting was the question about how it seems to be that younger people tend not to be buying into a us and them mentality and sort of thing. It's like Christ and reaching out yeah. to others. You know, you, taking you a variety of forms. You don't see them at the regular prophecy conferences. Mm-hmm. They just, they're just not there. Yeah. Now, I'm talking about the real traditional ones. That the one that with, uh, the one uh, that we were at in Branson mm-hmm. was a really unique hybrid, and it had a ton of the Revelations Radio Network people there. Mm-hmm. And I think that had to do with a lot of the young people there, mm-hmm. because none of the other prophecy ones I've been to, of just the traditional folk, mm-hmm. it's nothing but gray-haired people. Yeah. And, you know, I asked Tim LaHaye once. I was standing next to him in the bathroom. And I asked Tim LaHaye, I said, uh, Mr. LaHaye, I said, all I see are gray-haired people here. I said, are you concerned that young people really aren't getting interested in this mm-hmm. if the Lord tarries? And his response was, hmm, that's an interesting question. And well, he just walked away. You might have caught him in the middle of, you know, doing his business. Well, it was still a good question. Sure, but he was his mind was elsewhere. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Okay. Well, yeah. Just speak on his behalf. Yep. Anything else that you want to say on behalf of Mr. LaHaye? <laughs> yeah. He'll be Klingon. He'll be casting a spirit out of you. No, it's Klingon. So, like, like Forrest Gump says, that's all I got to say about that. Jenny! So, anyway. Unless there's something else you Captain want to add. Dan, you, Lieutenant Dan, you got your legs back. Any... Anything you want to comment on about prophecy work today in general or where things are going? or Life is like a box of chocolates. Never sure what you're going to get. Oh, no. I took you down this in path. the prophecy community, you've got... Anything, by the way, anything... Creole, you, crimp, shresh, Anything shrimp, you shrimp. notice... Time out. Anything that you picked up on when you were at Branson... Again, it was a different crowd because we yeah, had the Relations was, Radio Network people there, but there were, but from the old guard people. Yeah, there were like there were like two groups of people. The younger group of people were not interested money, interested in interested in 
figuring stuff out, ministering to people, being holy. Yeah. Uh, very, very grassroots oriented. Yeah. Uh, not interested in people telling them what to do. Yeah. Um, very sort of hands-on ministry people. I saw people praying for other folks. Uh, I saw Brother Daniel. I walked by the media room and he had volunteered to be there and stuff and he had just brought his guitar and was singing praise songs with yeah. some two ladies I guess he had just met that afternoon and they were just yeah. sitting there singing popular praise tunes, you know? Yeah. And uh, I can tell you, I didn't see that when I went to the pre-trib study group well, in Dallas. A little older. Didn't see yeah. much of that. If you sit on the floor like he was, they probably couldn't yeah. get back up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, generally, generally sort of like pre-wrathish, you know, yeah. and or at least open to more systems, whereas the older group tends to be more top down, yeah. uh, the more money, uh, more of a more of a uh, the A celebrities, you know, sort of don't yeah. have anything to do with the B celebrities. Yeah. And the B celebrities try to be the A celebrities and everybody else just sort of attends and yeah. looks. I didn't know, see most of those A celebrities stick around very long. They did their thing, and they said, I'll be signing books out here if you want to buy a book. And then they sort of, in the suites, it seemed like, for the most part. <laughs> but at least, I tell you what, at least people like Chris White and yourself and others were there. So when people had spiritual decisions to be made, there was somebody there to yeah. share the gospel with them and baptize yeah. them in the Baptisms pool. Baptisms in the pool. Which is know. something else I don't ever see in other prophecies. Yeah, Brother Chris and then uh, Brother Russ baptizing two different folks there in the evening. and then, Yeah, yeah. Um, it just it was good, yeah. You know, like people yeah. lifting each other up and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they're used to seeing that, mm-hmm. that kind of thing there. But uh, yeah, my experience when I'm into the traditional prophecy conferences, and I would go up to these people, and they might only be at their desk table for a few minutes right after their talk, mm-hmm. to sort of push the books. And I would, you know, maybe have a question to ask them, and they're like, "Well, have you seen my books at the book table? You got something for me to sign?" And if you didn't have that, you were out of luck. You know, you know it was you know it was cool is seeing uh, G. Edward Griffin getting to talk with him in the halls. He didn't stay mm-hmm. long, but yeah. he gets a pass because he's like nine thousand. Right, that's right. But uh, you know, I shook his hands and stuff and said, "Hey, you know." Yeah, he's older than Treebeard. Yeah, you know? yeah, he's like one of the ants. The ants yeah. were just saplings when he only was he was real short, except for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, we 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 talked and stuff, and he was really a nice guy. You yeah. know. He didn't go to his book table. He just went back right back right. to his room to sleep, I think. Sure. Did yeah, you explain crazy. some banking stuff to him, hopefully? Yeah. I said, you got it all wrong, man. You got to start yeah. listening to John Maynard Keynes. Yeah. He was too upbeat. Paul Krugman. You got it. <laughs> Paul Krugman, man. Come on. Well, let's switch gears here. Let's mm-hmm. talk about the conference that we went to. Peace Catalyst. Peace Catalyst. Didn't know they had a theme song. That's new for me. Yeah, they do now. Okay. Um, what's it say on the front of it there? Study guide, peacemaking, building, building, reconciling communities. Okay. God's comprehensive plan to restore, to resolve conflict and restore harmony. Yeah, we found out about this when Martin Brooks was on our show a few uh-huh. weeks ago, which is very funny because he was a polarizing figure. We got a number of emails of people that really enjoyed him and were really blessed by what he had to say. Mm-hmm. And then we had a few people that said that it was part of a grand deception and that he was part of an ecumenical movement. That did, he, did he learn that in 25 years out there on the mission field, living in a living in huts made of cinder block with with tar roofs, you know, and dirt floors? Was that where this ecumenical You're trying to say that he would know more about this than the rest of us? Yes. Just because he's what out I'm there saying. That's exactly the what I'm saying. The fact that he spent 25 years... In Mozambique, uh, 
Mauritania, I think, Madagascar, and Turkey, as well as yeah. Syria, I Cyprus. think qualifies him to speak as an expert on the subject. Yeah. But what do I know? Well, anyway, it, like I said, it was I a know that polarizing. I have the mic on, so. <laughs> it was a polarizing thing because, because a lot of people just really were super blessed, and then the other people just uh, really thought it was really dangerous. And actually, as I said, what was it, two weeks ago, mm-hmm. some of the documents they sent me showing about some of the high-level, very top-level evangelical Muslim dialogue mm-hmm. was what they feared the most, and I read them on our show mm-hmm. for people to sort of know exactly what's being talked about at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we were sort of invited to come along. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we went. And uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. I was there. You were there. Robert Hyde was there on site. Um, uh, Futurian Samuel mm-hmm. came, Futurian Kurt, and Futurian Katie. Yeah, it was a party. So we had a good uh, representation. A bunch of people from Knoxville were there. Yeah. And a group from Columbus were there. Yeah. Ben Carmack even made a late-breaking cameo after the thing was over. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. He dropped in of future Quake guest. Mm-hmm. Uh, a whole rat pack there. So um, share with us a little bit about what you noticed there. And Well, well I'll read something here uh, that I thought was interesting. God is a peace-loving God and a peacemaking God. The whole history of redemption, climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus, is God's strategy to bring about a just and lasting peace between rebel man and himself, and then between man and man. Mm -hmm. Therefore, God's children are that way too. They have the character of their father. What he loves, they love. What he pursues, they pursue. You can know his children by whether they are willing to make sacrifices for peace the way God did. Mm Mm-hmm. Who said that? I don't know who said that. John Piper. John Piper. Yeah. Yeah. You know, not somebody you He's would... like a far-out liberal, isn't he? John Piper. Yeah. He's a communist. Um, what I guess what I noticed about the conference, and I, I actually got a chance to go there on Friday for a couple hours and then the all-day Saturday thing, mm-hmm. was that that was one of the few things that were common in there that weren't just scripture. It was almost wall-to-wall scripture, from what I mm-hmm. re- remember. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a couple of the verses that really st- stood out to me uh, talked about uh, teaching Beatitudes and elsewhere, about when we act as peacemakers, mm-hmm. and it's a, it is an action. It's not a passive, like, wanting to be peaceful or whatever, but being mm-hmm. peacemakers. And it says, those people are called the children of God. Yeah. Basically reflecting an innate attribute of God. Uh, I think they mentioned that uh, God of Peace is mentioned, what, something like 250 times in the Old Testament? Mm-hmm. I don't have my notebook here with me. I, I don't have it right here. Uh, the Peace of God is mentioned something like uh, 50 times in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. What were some of the other? Uh, I mean, it's, it's substantial. Yeah. yeah here the Gospel some. of Peace was mentioned five times mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Here's one. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. That's 2 Corinthians 13. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Philippians 4.9 May God himself... The God of peace sanctify you through and through. Mm-hmm. First Thessalonians. 
Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. Second Thessalonians 3, 6, 16. Mm-hmm. Can I borrow that for a chance to? There's a verse I want to find in there that meant a lot to me. Okay. From that conference, and I'll hand it right back to you. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one that when, when he, when he read this early, um, in the, uh, and, and feel free to say anything else while I'm looking this up. In okay. The, in the well, here. you know, I'll tell you, uh, the cool thing was, is, is just talking to all the different people who there who had done ministry in different ways. We mm-hmm. talked to a lady who had been a, a semi-professional basketball player who had went to, uh, she had been to Iran a couple times mm-hmm. and been to, I think, Syria. And uh, she talked a lot about, she talked some about the fact that when she was there, these women really looked up to her because of it. And she was she was able to speak to them through this sort of right. thing. And the other interesting thing were the two guys, the two African gentlemen, uh, Gideon and uh, Reuben, I believe. Mm-hmm. Brother Gideon. That's and, right. Brother Gideon. Gideon and was from Nigeria, and Reuben was from oh Kenya. Kenya. Yeah. Right. And they 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 talked they talked some about how, you know the the communities and stuff were being healed through the fact that you know, you know these people were actually looking for peace. I I really like the one the one story that Rick Love shared uh, about how this pastor went to a. Uh, he went to this the the head of like a militant group in Indonesia in the town. You know, he was a pastor and his people were kind of getting persecuted. And he went and knocked on the door. And the dude opens the door and he says, I could kill you. He says, I just want to drink tea with you. Yeah. And they go in and drink tea. And he says all these, you know, God says you're this and that and all this stuff. And he says, I just want to drink tea with you. And so he keeps going and going and going. And then they had the big tsunami there in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, why don't you get some people and I'll get some people and we'll both go and try and help. Right. And so they went and he came back and he told his people, they're infidels, but they're really good infidels. <laughs> and then what ended up happening, what ended up happening is, uh, um, you know, they needed a, their church kept growing because of, mm-hmm. because of, you know, that's what churches do if they're healthy. And, um. Uh, they needed a bigger building, and this Muslim leader who used to be persecuting them actually helped them secure financing to get a larger building, which is interesting. Muslim did that. Yeah. I thought we couldn't trust any of them. That they you couldn't believe what it's any a long term sort of sneaker plan. Okay. Yeah. More churches they built, the more deceptive they are. Yeah. Um, here, here was a verse that really meant a lot to me, and I guess I just read my own thing into it. This is Hebrews twelve fourteen to fifteen. Uh, it says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now remember about living in peace. Mm-hmm. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, I've often interpreted that passage where it says, see that no one misses the grace of God to mean that that's talking about you as an individual or people in your group. You know, to do that. Mm-hmm. But I suddenly saw that in the context of living peace with all men. It's not just church people they're talking about, all men. And and, it, and it's a command to see to it that no one misses the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Now, I can interpret that to say that I have a calling to make sure that you do not miss out on the grace of God. Hmm. My neighbor down the street, that they do not miss out on the grace of God. The Muslim guy that works at the... Mediterranean restaurant, you know, in town. 
any of these people that that I'm commanded here to make sure that they don't, no one, none of them miss out on the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a, a wonderful holy calling. If that is true, if I'm called just to make sure that if all possible, that people do not miss out on the, on the grace of God. Mm-hmm. And at first I have to be at peace with people to be able to have a discussion, to be able to uh, well, one of show the, the grace that's before them. One of the things that I've struggled with is integrating um, all the different all the different ideas of of how God's kingdom looks like. Yeah. You know, you've got you know God's kingdom as a personal atonement for me, and then you've got the idea of you know like God's kingdom really is a kingdom that's sort of overlaid on reality, and then you've mm-hmm. got the hidden reality idea sort of found in the Johannan literature. Where it's you know a, 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 there's this other thing going on, and then you've got mm-hmm. and then you've got what I call the Christ vacuum, which like all the promises and everything else just sort of gets sucked up into Christ. Mm-hmm. And um, what I found with all of this stuff, it's interesting the continuum of peace there because it sort of rattled something in my brain just today <clears throat> that that what may be going on. Both with the continu- con- you know, the continuum of peace that he talks about there, mm-hmm. where it's first a peace with God, and then peace with yourself, peace with your brothers and sisters, and then peace with uh, your peace with the community, and then mm-hmm. peace with your enemies. Right. I think there might be a similar continuum going on there when people try to talk about the kingdom of God. You know, like you know, personal atonement. I'm, I think it's totally cool. It's obviously, you know, there. pretty essential. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty real. And but I'm, I can't help but wonder if that may line up with sort of what Rick was talking about. You know, mm-hmm. peace with God first and foremost is personal atonement, mm-hmm. and then you know, have peace with yourself. You know, you can almost look at that. The next, the obvious next step, like you see in Colossians chapter two. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, peace is almost a sign of. of any part of a person or society that has come under the kingdom of God. Possibly. It's hard to say. Because if it's in God's kingdom, it mm-hmm. should be in a state of peace. Well, one of the things you see is, like, um, God sort of establishes peace with, you know, he says, you've made peace with God, and now you have, you know, and, and now you have this new nature. Yeah. You know, so you go out. It's it's like the essential imperative to go out and live all of these commands out, being mm-hmm. at peace and sort of and those things. Mm-hmm. And as you go, you see you see how Paul in other places sort of talks about, um, you know, peace in the community and stuff. That the mm-hmm. kingdom of God really is a community, as much as you can mm-hmm. live peaceably with all men. You know, mm-hmm. and so that sort of corresponds to the you know almost a ransom theory, Christus, Christus Victor view, mm-hmm. and then all of this stuff is sort of enshrined. Uh, all of this stuff, the connective cord is sort of like the the hidden reality view of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's a real reality. The reality that we know is overlaid over real spiritual reality. And, you know, we get glimpses and, and stuff over yeah. it yeah. Al- along with this. And, and the thing that's sort of the, the prism of all of this, the fulcrum of, you know, is sort of the Christ vacuum view of everything where it all sort of gets sucked up into Christ because that's our new nature. Yeah. He's the one who you know, sacrificed for our personal sins mm. and lives mm. us, gets us to live out there. So I was thinking yeah. a lot about this uh, when I should have been concentrating on what somebody was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand. Do the same thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, they did not shy away from 
some of the questions that a lot of our listeners have here about, well, what does this do when you're trying to make peace to Muslims or other people about tell them the good news and the atonement and just living at peace with people, you know, where you're not disturb, you know, harming each other and more like a truce. It's more like wishing well for each other. Yeah. Um, how does that deal with the part of us really sharing the, uh, sharing the gospel? uh And, I suddenly was thinking about that and realized that when you have people that are under something as significant, a, um, I guess you could call it a bondage, significant a cultural thing as being raised under Islam and, and the challenges. You know, we, we've said many times that for someone to go from Catholicism to Protestantism is an incredible leap for them to have mm-hmm. a different way of thinking and the impact on the family and stuff like that, what your mm-hmm. family thinks. Well, how much more so in Islam when you do mm-hmm. that. But there's and, a great and, book. And it's a hard, I'm sorry. As a, as, a, as a side note, there's a great book that I highly recommend everybody read. Yeah. It's by Bill Musk, Bill Musk called uh, The Math. So I'm sorry, hold on. I've got the computer in front of me. Yeah. Bill Musk. Um, I'll tell you exactly. Okay. Well, if you want me to finish my point here. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Um, the, the the point I was making is that it can be such a roadblock for getting headway in spiritual progress, talking with someone from such a very different religious system like mm-hmm. that, that some of us believe that you almost, you have to have a supernatural breakthrough with people. Mm-hmm. It's, you're, you're not going to like just by reason, reason somebody in and have such a profound change mm-hmm. in their thinking. There's something, you know, Lord's got to give a vision or something like that. But I realized that one way that God can do that is that when we exhibit with other people, particularly Muslims or others of a very different view, the peace that passes all understanding. That's the term used in the Bible mm-hmm. for what we exhibit. And the peace that passes all understanding. In fact, when we exhibit a peace that's willing to go on their turf, mm-hmm. um, reach, to be the first one to reach out, be the first one to be with them, to be humble, uh, to regard their opinion and other kind of things like this. When we do that, we, when we can exhibit a peace that passes all understanding, that is a sign to others that there is something supernatural about us and supernatural going on mm-hmm. with our spiritual state. And that can often do more than any other kind of reasoning that we do with people. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to have a ready word when we're asked to mm-hmm. about the nature of our belief and our faith. But but the peace that passes understanding is something we sell short. But I know there's so many times that people have been in offices where a man or a woman has had a terrible tragedy, lost a spouse or a child or something else has happened, and they show this incredible peace and serenity when they're in God's hands. And that moves people who are not Christians to suddenly take that person's faith much more seriously and real than all the arguing they could do. And I think our actions of peace can actually further the gospel because when we show a peace that can only be described supernaturally it can actually help people make that leap mm-hmm. is what i was thinking you did you find that reference yeah it is uh bill musk called the unseen face of islam and one of the things uh, one of the things that i think is critical and essential that people miss in the dialogue yeah uh is the fact that um <clears throat> islam is just one it's an important part, but it's only one thing of a larger cultural tribal thing. And to mm-hmm. come out of that thing, like you're basically yeah. turning your back 
It's like mm-hmm. you've decided you're essentially saying I'm turning my back on everything. Yeah. You know, it's not just a little right. it's not like, you know, not, not like walking down the aisle at church some Sunday mm-hmm. here in America. You know, you're saying mm-hmm. your family may kill you. Yeah. You know. And a lot of our listeners understand that and know that, you know, that that's what's involved, but that means out of our love, we have to go to extraordinary measures to help them into the kingdom. And uh something that they came up with um that they showed sort of like a pictorial kind of thing to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. They showed a foundation of doing peacemaking and reconciling communities. Uh, they they referred to the titles of God out of Scripture, that he's a God of peace, uh, the concept of the peace of God, mm-hmm. the gospel of peace referred to in the New Testament, and also the many blessings that are conferred to peacemakers in Scripture. Mm-hmm. And they said that the the things that we can do, the the, the you know, the different actions that make up this peacemaking activity is pray mm-hmm. for peace pursue peace with all take responsibility for it it's not somebody else's job to do lovingly reprove people on spiritual matters mm-hmm. or whatever accept reproof uh ask for forgiveness from from people like this even from a muslim mm-hmm. ask for forgiveness forgive others you know one of the done. things that and came then to my mind while I love your enemies. Yeah, one of the things that came to my mind while speaking about this is it seems like as a as a subculture, as an evangelical subculture of which I am, I guess vaguely a part. I don't know. Um, as as a subculture of Christians, it seems like we have we have sort of crossed over a number of very important rules. But mm-hmm. one of them is you know when um, when Jesus is talking in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he talks about, um, you know, everybody who says, everybody who says, uh, uh, judges his brother will be guilty of hellfire and, you know, says Raka will be guilty of the judgment, mm-hmm. that whole thing. It's, um, one of the things that I've always taken from that is that it seems like Jesus is saying is don't unmake people, you know, and that's sort of what we've done, you know, in thinking about, um, uh, you know, uh, thinking about the way, like asking forgiveness from a Muslim, like Mm -hmm. if I, you know, I don't know, stepped on his toes or something, physically, spiritually, Mm -hmm. maybe not spiritually, but physically or Mm -hmm. emotionally, you know, and saying, I'm sorry, brother, forgive me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had to say that, like, it didn't, I didn't really, I thought that was weird. Mm -hmm. You know, like, why should I? Yeah. And and I'd like to think I'm a fairly comfortable person Mm -hmm. with all of that. And so... I mean that's a that's interesting. I think maybe mm-hmm. as a culture we've unmade as an evangelical subculture we've unmade another culture because they're convenient enemies. Yeah. Well, one thing we hate to let go of is pride. Can 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 well, I share something real on the back of this? It, I just want it while I've got it. Yeah, I just like to point out that this well, is the one time that I'm prepared. And <laughs> you're prepared <laughs> and I'm not. I didn't think about having this with me. Woo-hoo! I was going to have more of a. Just a casual few-minute conversation. It took me almost 300 shows to get one over on you. Mine is just down the hall. Mine is down the hall, (laughs) which I could go run and do, but then I'd have to be responsible for you for like 30 seconds of running the show for me. I know. Here's a a few other statements I was going to make, okay? (laughs) Out of the room. Almost everything is scripture in Uh here, but their summary are a few things, and I want you to comment on these. Mm -hmm. Okay, they say that the gospel of peace is comprehensive, um, the gospel of peace reconciles us to God. And they have Bible verses to, to basically show all this. 
The gospel of peace brings healing to our pain. The gospel of peace brings harmony in our relationships. Reconciliation is multidimensional because the impact of sin is multidimensional. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it says uh, God's shalom, which is the word we often translate peace. It's a Jewish word or Hebrew word mm-hmm. that's really more of a comprehensive wholeness of mm-hmm. lifestyle that's in the Bible. God's shalom is a holistic peace addressing five areas in our lives, spiritual, personal, social, economic, and environmental. And that was the original meaning of the word. Mm-hmm. And it says, God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God, Matthew 5, 9. Uh, and Matthew 5, 44 says, I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and that way you will be acting as the true children of your Father in heaven. Again, showing this is the nature of God, is to be at peace. And we start looking like our dad, when he, our, our father, when we do this. It says, as God's kids, we work for peace, we represent the God of peace, we pursue the peace of God, and we share the gospel of peace. And later uh, in, in this uh, uh, workshop, it talks about we're commanded to forgive. We forgive because we've been forgiven, and we forgive from the heart. Um, and it even gives you practical guidelines in here for how to deal with conflict with other people. I mean, only one small part of it was about Muslim Christian relations. The rest of it was just generally making peace in our families and our mm-hmm. communities. It says that we should affirm people before confronting them. Um, uh, yeah, in, in some cases, a person's sin is obvious. However, it's usually wise to begin the process of reconciliation with questions. Mm-hmm. In other words, just don't hit somebody under the nose. Um, uh, he says, uh, we demonstrate neighbor love through compassion, we demonstrate neighbor love working for justice. We demonstrate neighbor love by protecting those who are violated. God's word commands us not to return evil for evil. Jesus' strong emphasis on love takes priority over commands that appear to contradict acts of love. And I'm just wrapping up here. I'm, I'm giving them a quick and dirty of the things we learned that were discussed in Scripture. Um, the government of God's servant with divine authority is to punish evil. Love refers to acts of kindness, not feelings of kindness. We are to be merciful just as our Father is merciful in Luke 6.36. Mm-hmm. And Jesus loved us and laid down his life for us. When? While we were enemies. Romans 5.10. Mm-hmm. And we should always remember that when we say, well, whether it's Muslims or whoever you're talking to, somebody you consider enemy of God. Well, they've done all this and this and this. Why should we just want to be... And I got a lot of emails from... Uh, from our show we had with Martin, well, why would you just sort of lay down and give up and be a demi, you know, and just bare your neck to the Muslims and stuff? And and the fact is, we emulate God when we do that, because God sent His Son to die for us when we were still sinners. We were the enemies of God mm-hmm. when He did that. So we show them the gospel when we do that. Um, yeah, there was one of the things that I've always stuck in my mind was a story that I heard that back in the 60s a, a uh, pastor was convinced that he needed to work towards racial re- racial reconciliation in his mm-hmm. small biracial community and uh, he invited uh, many members from a predominantly African American church into his church and so there's all these mm-hmm. you know black folks sitting in the church with the white folk and everything and the next week uh, some guy who attended church once in a while uh, came to the church and uh, he was drunk, and he 
he walked up front to beat the pastor up. Mm-hmm. Well, the pastor, you know, got down on his knees and let the guy beat him up. Um, the thing about that, is, you know, and to showing him like, look, you know, nonviolent is not mm-hmm. violence is not the way. The thing about this was, is this pastor was a former cruiserweight Golden Gloves boxer. Mm. And he could have leveled the guy. Mm-hmm. That would have been his instinct. Yeah. Would but, have been to respond. Yeah, but he said, you know, I'm going to, you know, show the way of peace to this guy, even if it meets, you know, hard times. And it did, you know. Yeah. They, they, he really beat him up. Yeah. And I beat him up bad. Yeah. Wow. Well, he was more concerned about his soul. Uh, just to conclude here, um, they taught that a Christian response to evil is that evil is to be hated, it is not to be repaid, it is to be overcome with good, it is to be punished by the government, and is never to be done to a neighbor. And there's scriptures that they cite for all these. Um, Views regarding how followers of Christ respond to war. One is the Holy War Crusades, another is the No War, idea of pacifism, one is the idea of a just war, and also just peacemaking. Um... And as far as the church and the state, Jesus calls his people to work for peace. Jesus calls his people to love. Jesus calls his people to submit to and to work for justice with government, uh, governing authorities. Jesus calls the state to administer justice, work for peace, and punish evil. Mm-hmm. Those things all sound easy. They roll right out the tongue, mm-hmm. except all of the stories we do in Future Quake, which we'll get right into now, mm-hmm. basically show where either the government violates those real simple principles or the Christian people violate them. Mm-hmm. And those things I just rolled off the tongue real quick is basically, if if people did that, we wouldn't have anything to talk about in Future Quake for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was um. It was good. Well, let me ask you this. I guess we probably need to wrap up and get on some stories here. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like you sold out your faith to Christ by going to that conference? Uh, no. I mean, did you? You know, give up on Christian distinctives or what we believe is true for salvation by considering reaching out a hand of Is it a serious peace. question? Yeah, I want a serious answer. Because I'm asking that on behalf of a number of our listeners. Well. Who, are, who you know, had serious concerns about that. No. Okay. Um, do you feel like there was anything positive spiritually? Yes. Major spiritual positives about it you know um, uh, um, you know when a when missionaries when one guy who was like the assistant director of frontiers and a guy who's been a missionary for 25 years and you know the gentleman you introduced me to had been missionaries to the Philippines for a long time I sat at a table with two guys who had missions to Muslims uh, Brother Kurt had been a missionary to mm-hmm. China for ten years, all mm-hmm. told, eight years constantly, and ten mm-hmm. years often, you know, two and cur- more years often. currently reaching out to yeah, Muslim people yeah. in respect. And um, uh, you know, the, the the whole room was sort of indicative of that. You know, two brothers from overseas mm-hmm. doing this. Um, I mean, under threat, their countries were at war. Yeah, there was war going on where they were. Mm-hmm. And they were having to work at risk of their lives mm-hmm. with Muslims. It's really easy to sort of throw that to throw that label down. And I can kind of understand where they're coming from because there are ecumenical groups yeah. that are working for that. I, I went to one. The one in Montreal was creating a new world religion that was taking away everything distinctive from Christianity away. 
Mm-hmm. But in fact, they hated all monotheistic religions. They hated mm-hmm. Christianity, Judaism, and, and Islam as standing in the way of their global. Mm-hmm. And so they were all sort of supportive of them killing each other. Yeah. Of course, they also wanted the Space Brothers to come, too. And it's sort of weird to see the United Nations and World Council of Churches funding a group that's teaching that kind of thing. But but then again, they were teaching everybody how to be spirit channelers and mediums. Mm-hmm. You know, and they believed we all could become God mm-hmm. rather than being accountable to a personal God, hmm. an external one. Um, uh, it was such a difference from the last conference. I had to laugh when I opened up my notebook to take notes at this conference uh, because the last one I was just at that I had notes in was the anti-Sharia conference mm-hmm. here in town. And here, here the other one was also in a church, just like the church we were in. Our group was, what would you say, 50 to 60 people, something like that. Mm-hmm. The one I was at before had thousands, thousands of people, the anti-Sharia conference. It had big-name celebrity speakers. It had a bunch of politicians. It had state representatives, media celebrities, all these folks speaking, huge money being spent, you know, at the conference. Mm-hmm. And not once at that earlier conference did I hear anything about Jesus, the Great Commission, love your enemy, uh, pray for them, any, anything. Mm-hmm. It was all about basically tearing down, burning down, chasing away, standing up in conflict. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of cheering, a lot of people up on their feet yelling and screaming and cheering. And a lot of Christians, that, I, I told you later, I felt like it was the Nuremberg rally, you know, without yeah. the torches. Mm-hmm. But then well, the, the fact that they went through people's bags without asking and yeah. other things like that really limited. high security. I mean, it felt like black water it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but this thing we were at was just a bunch of people looking at scripture and finding out how to be lowly, how to be humble, how to not be prideful, uh, how to take the first step, and and how to ask forgiveness without seeking forgiveness from someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, which which one do you think really represents Christ's attitude more? You know? The Nuremberg rally, of course. <laughs> Duh. Well, if you you got anything else you want to share on that, or we can get on to our stories. Let's get on to the stories. Okay, won't you share? Get something on with to the stories, Mr. Bonick. Won't you share? Get something? on to the stories. What do you got for us? Got a bunch of good ones. We'll pick the best one here now. All right. No, Why just, you should postpone college? Don't just hunt for it. Start talking. La 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 la. No, no, no. If not, I'm gonna read. If you're not. I'm losing my mind. You are. You're gonna click stuff off. I've got it. Mine is right here in front of me, just okay. inches away. So is mine. It's right well, here. Well, then read. All right, but I don't want to read that one. All right, I read it. Why are the Chinese buying record quantities of gold? You always do the economic stories. Always you and yes. the gold. I know. I don't know why are they. I keep. Is this a riddle? Yes. It's a. It's a. It's a haiku. Okay. Knock knock. Who's there? Chinese gold. <laughs> Chinese gold. Who? Hey, is that the premier of China? He's the. He's actually the. <laughs> who's he's actually the the finance minister? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. What's gold who got to say? Yep. Who's on first? Uh, who's on? I don't know. This month. The Hong Kong Census and Statistics Department reported that China imported 102,779 kilograms of gold from Hong Kong in November, an increase from the October high of 86,299 kilograms. 
Beijing does not release gold trade figures, so for this and other reasons, the Hong Kong numbers are considered the best indication of China's gold imports. Analysts believe China bought as much as 490 tons of gold in 2011. Mm. That's a lot of gold. Double the estimated for 245 tons in 2010. The thing that caught people's minds is the massive increase in Chinese buying, remarks Ross Norman of Sharps Pixley, a London gold brokerage this month. So who in China is buying all this gold? It's a good question. Mm-hmm. The People's Bank of China, the central bank, has been hinting that it is purchasing. No asset is safe now, says PBOC's Zhang Zhuang at the end of last month. The only choice to hedge risks is to hold hard currency, gold. He also said it was a smart strategy to buy on market dips. Analysts naturally jump on, jumped on this comment as proof that China, the world's fifth largest holder of the metal, is on the market for more. There are a few problems with this conclusion. First, the Chinese government rarely benefits others and hurts itself by telegraphing its short-term investment strategies. Second, the central bank has less purchasing power these days. Yep. China's foreign reserves declined in Q4 falling $20.6 billion from Q3. <clears throat> the first quarterly outflow since 1998 was not large, but the trend was troubling. The reserves declined uh, a stunning $92 billion in November and December. Apart from China's central bank, there is not much demand from the country's institutional investors for gold. There are industrial users, of course, but their demand is filled from domestic production. China is also the world's largest gold producer, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Most of China's gold demand from foreign sources, therefore, is from individuals. So why are individuals buying gold? The easy answer is that the demand is only seasonal, says Jeff Wright of Global Hunter Securities. You know, we should have like some kind of gold seller advertise on our show when we have stories like this. We could probably make good money on that. Maybe a dollar or two. Mm Mm-hmm. The Chinese traditionally buy gold in run-up to the Lunar New Year, which started a week ago. Yet gift giving. We're not on camera. Why are you doing like hand <laughs> mnemonics for these stories? I just I'm trying to be more expressive. Okay. You know I'm always trying to trying radio. to up the game. You know. I appreciate that. Uh, yet gift giving does not bring begin to explain the surge of gold that uh, started as far back as July, November was the fifth consecutive month in China's record gold purchases from Hong Kong. A better explanation. I can't even, I can't do it with a straight face. Oh, my god! You haven't been able to do much tonight with a straight face. Uh, I know. I had something in the water or something. Mm -hmm. Lost my marbles. Mm -hmm. Finally rolled out from the packing crate. It is my mind. About episode number 95. Yep. Uh, I think it was when I started, didn't it? Pretty much just right after that. (laughs) A better explanation for the gold-buying binge of Chinese citizens is that they are using the shiny commodity as an inflation hedge, which is kind of what I think. Yet the buying of gold has increased while inflation has eased. Mm, Maybe. And that means there must be another explanation. So there you have it. The best explanation is that individuals in China are using gold as a substitute for capital flight. Yeah. So... That's the that's the essentials right there in a and, nutshell. And of course, related to that, help. I'm in a nutshell. Um, that's sort of interesting in light of the fact that it was in India. I think it's been buying Iranian oil directly in gold mm-hmm. and paying gold for it. So, 
Uh, you know, it's funny. India could actually buy oil in exchange for gasoline because I understand Iran doesn't have real refineries. They have gas shortages in Iran, mm-hmm. even though they've got all the oil. They don't have refineries. So. Okay. Um, you ready for me? Mm-hmm. This is from Haaretz, a Jewish or Israeli newspaper. Haaretz Daily Newspaper. Israel city braces for thousands of protesters against exclusion of women. Uh, it's about the Haredim. We've talked about them a few times. You, you remember we went to a, a, a conference of Messianic Jewish mm-hmm. folk here, and there was a gentleman who was a, has a Messianic Christian community in Israel, and he was talking about how the Haredim would actually attack their stuff. They're like real ultra-religious Jews. Mm-hmm. and would like burn down their stuff and attack. And I've been seeing a bunch of stories about this. Uh, in the news where they, they would come running up on the buses and yank people off and things. Mm-hmm. But it says, the Haredim clashed with police officers calling them Nazis throughout Monday, which is a pretty harsh term in, you know, Israel to call them. <laughs> yeah. Um, at least six were arrested or detained for questioning. More than 10,000 people are expected at a rally in Beit Shemesh on Monday to protest the exclusion of women as well as violence against girls and women by Haredi extremists. The rally will begin at 6 o'clock. Uh, the school's arguably most famous student is Nama Margolisi, uh, the 8-year-old immigrant, American immigrant who became a focal point after Channel 2 News broadcast a story Friday night showing her facing a daily gauntlet of abuse from Haredi extremists as she walks to school. Hmm. The rally was originally stated to, uh, slated to place in the courtyard of the school, but the venue was changed after organizers said Haredi extremists had threatened violence unless the location were changed. So these are these are Jewish uh, religious extremists in Israel who are doing this. On Monday night, uh, member Knesset Chaim Asalam uh, visited the Margolisi family at home and participated in their Hanukkah candlelighting ceremony. Hmm. Amsalam gave Nada Asadur, our prayer book, in which he wrote a dedication. When you walk to school, an entire nation is behind you. Hmm. It almost reminds us like our civil rights kind of things that happen, you know. Uh, Beit Shemesh Mayor Moshe Abitbul had asked to visit the family for candlelighting Monday, but the Margolisi's family firmly rejected the request even after repeated phone calls and text messages from city officials. Meanwhile, um, violence continued in Beit Shemesh on Monday as Haredim clashed with police officers. And these guys are serious. I mean, wouldn't these be called terrorists? I mean, they're, they're actually fighting police officers mm-hmm. uh, and attacked two television news crews. At least six people were arrested or detained for questioning. The violent scene in Beit Shemesh on Monday when a Channel 2 news team was attacked by 200 Haredi men, were repeated on Monday. On Monday morning, dozens of ultra-Orthodox men surrounded police officers and municipal inspectors who came to remove, for at least the third time this week, a sign on Hazan East Street in the Haredi neighborhood Nahala Vimanyuha, ordering men and women to use separate sidewalks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the men tried to prevent Sweet. the sign's removal, calling the police officers Nazis. Like separate sidewalks. Yeah. And he danced around them in circles. <laughs> yeah. This is the... <laughs> they now, danced around them in circles. Now, the real, you know, the real primitive stuff's going on over in Gaza, you know, with those Palestinians. But mm-hmm. anyway. 
Uh, a few hours later, a crew from Channel 10 was attacked as it tried to film a piece on education in the city. Police officers dispatched to the scene after the news team called for help clashed with dozens of Herodim. Some of them lay on the ground in an attempt to keep other members of the group from being arrested. Three people were taken into custody. About an hour later, a second television crew was attacked as it filmed the controversial sign. The, ch- the Channel 2 camera crew was pelted with eggs, and a videographer was physically assaulted. Police officers sealed off the street and found themselves facing around 300 Herodim, who shouted at them to leave, threw rocks at them, and set dumpsters on fire. Officers detained three suspects for questioning. Sounds like a, just an unruly mob. Now, if these were Palestinians doing what do you think they'd do? They'd call them Palestinian terrorists. Well, they would Chew. mow them down. They'd yeah. mow them down and... Drop some phosphorus in there or something. Mm-hmm. Like the social protest of the past year, the rally scheduled for tonight came together spontaneously on Facebook. See, there's a good use for Facebook. A Haradim, isn't it? Within hours of the air, you know, we can only get 13 at our, um, you know, peaceful thing outside the National Religious Broadcasters, you know, mm-hmm. uh, our intercessory prayer time. But they can get. You know, this many. I guess it's always more popular to go rough up people. You can get more people to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, within hours of airing of the television segment, Bit Lesson Theater actor Zviki Levine started a Facebook group called in Hebrew, 1,000 Israelis are going to be at Shemesh to protect little Nama. He soon linked up with the Be Free Israel movement and additional organizations such as Hitorut Yerushalim. Wake up, Jerusalem. I think I said that perfectly. <laughs> Margo Lisi, city officials. Uh, Tanya Rosenblatt, who became a symbol of the cause when she refused to sit in the back of a public bus carrying her ready passengers. See, it's just like another uh, Rosa Parks here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Zion Sultan. Wouldn't that be a cool name to have, Zion Sultan? Yeah. A local journalist and, and activist against religious uh, coercion, will take part in lighting the Hanukkah menorah on stage. Buses will be chartered using donated funds to bring participants from Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, Haifa, and the Sharon region. Good for them, for these people, for doing Mm -hmm. this. Organizers say Meretz and Kadima are expected to charter additional buses for the respective party workers. Israel Hofshit said politicians would not be allowed to address the rally or to conduct political activities in keeping with the quest of uh, beat Shemesh residents who say they don't want the event to become political. A group of Haredi residents of Beit Shemesh, led by Rabbi Dov Lippmann, has asked to take part in a rally. Lippmann has requested permission to address the crowd. So that's the story. And uh, we get a very, very one-dimensional view of Israel by our evangelical leadership. They don't really tell us more what's going on other than very, very little... And it's all homogenous. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of struggles. Just like the civil rights struggle we had in the 60s, they've got things like that going on in Israel right now. So mm-hmm. I'll leave it at that. There you go. What else you got? Uh, a number of things here. Oops. You you remember what I say every week about have them in order of how you want to read them? They're in order. I just, well, just start after reading I, them. After I hear one, after I hear what you're saying, you know, it's like... They don't have to relate. Okay, fine. They could just fine. be just your best ones. All right. The price of your soul. How the brain decides whether or not to sell out. All right. A neuroimaging study shows that personal values that 
refused, that people refuse to disavow, even when offered cash to do so, are processed differently in the brain than those values that are willingly sold. Our experiment found that the realm of the sacred, whether it's a strong religious belief, a national identity, or a code of ethics, is a distinct cognitive process, says Gregory Burns, director of the Center for Neuropolicy at Emory University and lead author of the study. The results were published in Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society. Sacred values prompt greater activation of an area of the brain associated with rule-based right or wrong thought process, the study shows, as opposed to the regions linking to processing of cost versus benefits. Burns headed a team that included economists and information scientists from Emory University, a psychologist from the New School for Social Research, and anthropologist from the Institute Jean Nicod in Paris, France. The research was funded by the U.S. Office of Naval Research, the Air Force Office of Scientific Research, and the Lucian Trust. I made that last person. Okay. That'd be Lucius Trust. Yeah. Um, we've come up with a method to start answering scientific questions about how people make decisions involving sacred values, and that has major implications if you want to better understand what influences human behavior across countries and cultures, Burns says. We are seeing how fundamental cultural values are represented in the brain. The researchers used functional magnetic resonance imaging to record the brain responses of 32 U.S. adults during key phases of an experiment. In the first phase, participants were shown statements ranging from the mundane, such as, you are a tea drinker, to hot button issues such as, you support gay marriage, and you are pro-life. Each of the 62 statements had a contradictory pair, such as, you are pro-choice, and the participants had to choose one of each pair, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we used the auction, um, the participants disavowing, at the end of the experiments, participants, participants were given the option of auctioning their personal statements, disavowing their previous choices for actual money. The participants could earn as much as $100 per statement by simply agreeing to assign, to sign a document stating the opposite of what they believed. They could choose to opt out of the auction for statements they ha valued highly. We use the auction as a measure of integrity for scientific statements. Specific statements, Burns explains. If a person refused to take money to change a statement, then we considered that value to be personally sacred to them. But if they took money, then we considered that they had low integrity for that statement and that it wasn't sacred. The brain imaging showed a strong correlation between sacred values and activation of the neural systems associated with evaluating rights and wrongs. And semantic rule retrieval but not with systems associated with reward. So uh, organized groups may still instill values more strongly through the use of rules and social norms is basically what he says. Um, and it goes on. As culture changes, it affects our brains, and as our brains change, that affects our culture. We can't separate the two burns. It says. literally affects our wiring of yeah, our brains. Yep. Uh, we now have the means to start understanding this relationship and that putting the relatively new field of cultural neuroscience onto the global stage. Future conflicts over politics and religion will likely play out biologically, Burns says. Interesting. Some cultures will choose to change their biology and in the process change their culture, he notes. He cites the battle over women's reproductive rights and gay marriage. And I would say that Mr. Burns is leaving the door right, wide open with that last statement to say we're just going to evolve into light beings. Yeah. And 
So that's I news. hope I'm a light being because I'm so heavy right now that yeah anything that makes me lighter. <clears throat> Gotta have more salads. More salads. Well, um, an air bread. That's why I had an old doctor always said that was that was all of his dietary advice. Just eat more salads. Yeah, um, it's good advice. What's really weird was when you think about them rewiring our brains by other means and other techniques. Mm-hmm. Reason number 547 where my TV doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. I'd rather wire my brain But even chemically, myself. you know, chemically and nutritionally. Well, you know, I mean, the studies you can find, them. it's not mm-hmm. like any secret. Fluoride in the pineal. You know. Fluoride in the pineal, like lab rats where they feed exclusively GMOs. You know, mm-hmm. over the third or fourth generation, they're growing, yeah. yeah, like ridiculous birth defects, like a leg coming out of their head. But, you know, it's one thing if it affects our general constitution, our well-being, our general health. Yep. But when it affects our mind, that's a whole much higher level of violation because then we're not even aware of what's been done to us. And we can and, and we can then be our own worst enemy doing mm-hmm. our own damaging stuff. Yeah. Well, what do you right. got? Well, speaking of brain damaged, um, I haven't done a General Boykin story in a while. Um, um, can I can I give two quick reports on a couple of uh, uh, prophets and their uh, and their hijinks lately? You know, a lot of stuff on General Boykin that I have I have not read on the show mm-hmm. because I didn't want to be like one one issue organ mm-hmm. and I'm going to be putting it in my book Holy War which I hope to finish this year uh, it's going to have a lot of stuff on Jerry Boykin that I've not talked about on the show but here's a story that just came up um, General Jerry now he, he was the guy who is really really one of your top evangelical speakers now particularly on political stuff anti-sharia law mm-hmm. he was uh, the guy who held who ran all of the special forces I mean he was the main general over all of them, was part of Delta Force. All your main operations he was a part of, actually either executing it or being a commander of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Didn't he just go down to South America and just kill Pablo Escobar? Like they sent him down there to train people? Well, sort of seems that way. He he went, forget training people, I'm just going to take him out. And he somehow took like camp x-ray techniques to Abu Ghraib for them to use him in Abu Ghraib prison. and. He he was advisor to Janet Reno over the Waco raid, so Whoa. very interesting resume. Um, also, he's the second command of the Protestant Knights of Malta. Um, second in command? Yeah. How did you find that out? Well, I've got pictures, pictures, and yeah, you know, the announcement. Uh, but here here's today's story. Uh, General Jerry Boykin claims North Carolina terror ring plotted to capture and torture him. This is from Bartholomew's Notes on Religion, really? which is a great website yeah. of information. Uh, a dramatic story from retired General Jerry Boykin, former U.S. Marine Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. Mm-hmm. A couple years ago, they arrested seven terrorists down in North Carolina. This is this is Jerry Boykin talking. Mm-hmm. A good friend of mine who was very well placed <coughs> in law enforcement in Virginia called me up and said, Sir, I need to meet you. Sir, I need to talk to you. I had been mentoring him for a couple of years. I went over and met him in a Starbucks outside of Richmond. I live near Richmond. He said, sir, I just came back from the FBI Academy. He said those seven people down there that they just arrested in North Carolina, he said, when they got into their computer, they had your name on that computer, 
and they were going to capture you and torture you, he said. They were also going to go to Quantico Marine Base, and they were going to try to ambush some people and kill some people there. What? I guess this is the way that the word gets back to Jerry Boykin that he was on there, was that there's some guy just sitting in a class that hears it, and that's how the word gets back to him. I don't know. Boykin is here discussing a terror ring which was uncovered during 2009 and which was led by Daniel Boyd. There were seven arrests while an eighth member of the group fled to Pakistan. The AP has details of a recent trial related to the case. Mohammed, Amar, Ali Hassan, Ziad Yagi, and Hyson Sharifi were part of a group of eight men who, who federal investigators say raised money, stockpiled weapons, and trained in preparation for jihadist attacks against American military targets and others they deemed enemies of Islam. Yagi was convicted of conspiracy to provide material support to terrorism and conspiracy to cap- carry out attacks overseas. Sharifi was convicted of both crimes, two counts of firearm possession and conspiracy to kill federal officers or employees by discussing an attack on the Quantico, Virginia Marine Corps base with ringleader Daniel Boyd, who had lived on the base as a child with his Marine officer father. Presumably, Boykin would come under the others they deemed enemies of Islam, but it's peculiar that the story has not come out until now and that Boykin only got to hear about it due to a private source. That was my question. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about it in the indictment. Boykin's story appears on a video entitled General Jerry Boykin with the TFC, which was posted to the website of the Tennessee Freedom Coalition. It's right here in our town on 22 January. The TFC has featured on this blog previously. It played a central role in November's Preserving Freedom Conference in Nashville. That was the one I referred to earlier that I was at. The TFC is also uh, has a couple of interesting British links. Paul Diamond and Andrea Williams of Christian Concern have attended TFC events, and Diamond has recently announced that Christian Concern would be coordinating their legal efforts with the TFC. The TFC also supports the English Defense League, which is the one that's sort of out in the streets fighting the Muslims mm-hmm. in England. And the TFC's Andy Miller calls Stephen Laxley Lennon uh, and Tommy Weston friends of mine. Boykin is well known. Now he's British, and that's why he's mentioned some of these British people. Boykin is well known for his anti-Islam views. In 2010, he led an event in Texas along Walid Shabbat and Robert Spencer, and for his claims that economic difficulties in the USA are a conspiracy enacted by George Soros so that Obama can use health care legislation to create an army of brown shirts. Boykin is closely associated with the neo-Pentecostal evangelist Rick Joyner and his joiners from Morningstar Ministries, an oak initiative. as things we've talked about before here. Unsurprisingly, the rest of Boykin's presentation is boilerplate. You know, it's funny. In, in some rabbinical writings, the Morningstar is Satan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, unsurprisingly, the rest of Boykin's presentation is boilerplate. Cultural jihad is taking over the country. Media and politicians are acting in accordance with the Muslim propaganda playbook. These are quotes from his presentation. Muslims are implementing their plan. The name War on Terror was a mistake because terrorism is a tactic, while the real problem is the theology of Islam and authoritative Islam. And the target is our Constitution. Further, these are all quotes from Boykin. Our government is penetrated at every level, while the Christian church is compromising. Boykin also cites the claim that 81% of mosques are extremists. Oh, well, you're going to have to prove that. 81. 
Uh, well, it's pretty precise. It's down to a percentile, a single percent. Yeah. Meanwhile, Boykin is due to address the mayor's prayer breakfast in Ocean City, Maryland, on 26 January. People for the American Way and Care have issued statements asking the mayor to consider. He was also, by the way, asked to speak. Um, oh, I don't have that in front of me. Uh, at West Point. And they were going to have him speak there, and they finally got him just the last day or two to cancel out decline because there was so much pressure coming down to get him to not speak at West Point. Mm. Um, if I could, just a little half page here, please, uh, while we're on the apostles, and then I'll be done here. This, you remember Peter Wagner I talked about last week, where he and Cynthia uh, Jacobs led <coughs> the Operation Ice Palace, Wet Seal or something, Ice were, Palace, yeah. yeah, where they went up to and they found the throne of the Queen of Heaven up on the side Moon of Everest. Operation or whatever. It is. Yeah, they were up on Everest and did it. Uh-huh. And he, he's, you know, he's the guy who's the ringleader of these Apostolic Reformation and the New Apostles, and and like uh, Rick, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, um, Purpose driven. Um, Rick, Rick Warren. Rick Warren used him as his thesis advisor on church growth, and so the C. Peter Wagner is an important guy. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a little update. The, the guy who actually defeated the Queen of Heaven on the side of Mount Everest is now being honored by the Delaware legislature. What? So I guess if you defeat the Queen of Heaven on the side and knock down her throne, Mount Everest, you're going to get acknowledged by states. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, this is from Right Wing Watch uh, from today. <laughs> C. Peter Wagner, founder of the New Apostolic Reformation, sent out an email yesterday announcing that he'd recently been in Delaware for the commissioning of several new apostles. Wagner wrote that when he arrived, he was surprised to learn that a good bit of field work had been done to assure the approval of the state of Delaware. In fact, Wagner reports that he was given a commendation and a key to the city of Seaford by its mayor and even received a tribute from the city council, the state senate, and the state house that was personally read by the local state representative. That's just bizarre. What? Well, as part of the ceremony, he says, I was officially welcomed as an apostle. Okay, so they identified him as such, the state leaders, and authorized to help commission apostles in the state. So now we have the government involved in helping the apostle selection process. The mayor of Seaford, a committed believer, read this commendation from his office and presented me with a key to the city. This was followed by a tribute complete with the seal of the Sussex County Council, a tribute with the seal of the Senate of the state of Delaware, and a tribute from the House of Representatives of the state of Delaware, read personally by the representative of the district. I could not help but feel that this event, held in our first state, uh, could well have been historic. For the record, I feel I should transcribe the document from the House, uh, elegantly uh, inscribed on 8.5 by 14 parchment paper and encased in a folder. It says, The state of Delaware House of Representatives, tribute, this is what the state wrote. Be it known to all that the House of Representatives recognizes Dr. C. Peter Wagner as an apostle for the occasion of commissioning apostles in the state of Delaware. On this special day of the commissioning service, we honor Dr. C. Peter Wagner for his many years of faithful service to the Lord of heaven and earth. This is what the state is acknowledging, him serving the Lord of heaven and earth, and to the advancement of his kingdom. These things say he who is holy, who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. 
I know your works. See that I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Revelation 3, 7. This is all in the representative's document. The House I'm of, listening to this, and I'm going, the House this of, has got to be a joke. The House of Representatives extends a sincere congratulations and directs this tribute to be presented on the 19th day of January, 2012. Signed, Robert Gilligan, Speaker of the House, Richard Puffer, Chief Clerk of the House, and Representative Daniel B. Short, Sponsor. So, you know, this is not all that strange when you do think about the the federal congressman in, in Congress uh, getting um, Reverend Moon and crowning him as like Savior of the Universe. Mm-hmm. And they put that crown on his head I right know, there in the Capitol building. The Capitol building. Yeah. 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 Wacko. <clears throat> but, you know, we got to be afraid of radical Islam. Then we're going to get strange religion taking over our country. <laughs> we... It's totally okay if people are, you know, like crowned. I didn't know you had to get a state license to to select apostles. Did you, or you know, had to get their approval? Yeah, I mean, you know, you're getting state troopers and stuff involved. But Why not? He's got like a license probably in his wallet that you know I can commission apostles wherever I want. Hopefully, it gets them out of like state. speeding tickets and stuff. Yeah, I figured they were in Delaware because that's where you got the loosest corporate rules. You know, mm-hmm. when you're handling big money. You want to have a Delaware corporation. That's the main reason to go there. Delaware, Delaware. How about a story? All right. We can do that. <laughs> Not humming a story. Okay. Unless you're just reading it says hum, 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 hum <clears throat> on the story. Yeah. It's it's a it's written up by a music rag. Okay. Um, UK riots. Paratroopers are trained in riot control. Awesome. Uh, British troops are being trained in riot control tactics amid fears that violence and looting will return to Britain's streets this summer. Hundreds of soldiers from 3rd Battalion, the Parachute Regiment, spent last week learning how to contain and arrest quote-unquote rioters in a series of exercises mirroring last summer's violence. Defense sources have confirmed that if violence were to return to British cities, especially during the Olympic Games, the paras would be ideally placed quote-unquote, to provide, quote-unquote, short-term support to provide forces around the U.K. Such a request would have to be made by the Home Office and would have to have Prime Minister approval, according to the source, or even some random dude. (laughs) Um, During the exercises at the Lyad training base in Kent, the elite troops were pelted with petrol bombs. Wow, really? and missiles and fought running battles with gangs of protesters as part of the battalion's public order training. The battalion is the lead unit in the Air Force Task Force, the Army's premier raid response unit, and can be called on to deal with a wide range of emergency situations from acid rescue to riot control around the world. You have to have Mm. worldwide riot control? Um, The sources have stressed, though, that being riot trained does not necessarily mean the pairs will be deployed into British streets <laughs> in the event of future wide-scale public disorder. Um, instead, the move was described as prudent contingency planning. Um, and that's it's short but sweet. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, there you have it. Uh, you want me to read another one? I don't care. I mean, that was so short. Okay. You know. This is by our good buddy over there in the wire danger room, Spencer Ackerman. Mm -hmm. He winds up a lot here. Um, 
Humans lose. Robots win in new defense budget. The big loser in the Pentagon's new budget? Ordinary human beings. About 80,000 human soldiers and 20,000 Marines are getting downsized. Half of the Army's conventional combat presence in Europe is packing up and ending its post-Cold War staycation. Stay-ca- I like that. Yeah. Staycation. Replacing them according to the $613 billion budget previewed by the Pentagon on Thursday. Unconventional special operations forces, new bombers, new spy tools, new missiles for subs, and a ver- veritable Cylon army of drones. So the drone war comes to Europe. That's about time. Yep. This is the first of the Pentagon's new, smaller austerity budgets. It's asking Congress for $525 billion plus $88.4 billion for the Afghanistan war, according to $553 billion to a $553 billion request uh, last year. Only the Pentagon is emphasizing that the military is keeping, not what it's cutting, that's because congressional Republicans don't like swallowing these cuts, and they really don't want to acquiesce to a currently scheduled law that could tack on another $600 billion plus to the already scheduled decade-long $487 billion in cuts. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta is preempting the objections, promising a force that's smaller and leaner but agile, flexible, and ready and technologically advanced. Uh-huh. Sure. Yeah. <coughs> Um, that means no changes to the U.S. fleet of 11 aircraft carriers and 10 air wings, all reflecting the Obama's administration emphasis on the Western Pacific. It means leaving the nuclear triad, um, the bombers, subs, and missiles that can end all life on Earth alone. It means electronic weapons to jam enemy defenses and attack online kidnappers, online networks. It means elite commando forces like the ones who rescued two aid workers kidnapped in Somalia. And it means drones for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and dessert. So, there you have it. He's got a funny writer, isn't he? Um, let me write, I'll, I'll read another part of another page here and stop. As previewed by President Obama earlier this month, the new budget is going to fund 65 Predator and... Uh, Reaper combat air patrols, squadrons of up to four drones with surge capacity of 85, up from 61 today. The Army may may be losing 100,000 soldiers, but if it's any consolation, the Army's forthcoming Gray Eagle drone gets the thumbs up. So does sea-based unmanned systems like the Navy's Fire Scout Robocopter, an unspecified new unmanned system with increased capabilities. Probably a reference to next-gen drones like the Navy's X-47B, which should be able to fly from an aircraft carrier at the click of a mouse by 2018. You, you know how this is all changing, how we're becoming this all-drone army? Um, one thing is we've taken <coughs> another taboo away about putting our troops in harm's way mm-hmm. where we may we have can, a lot of casualties. We can or kill with total impunity. With, without much, with what perceived much risk, mm-hmm. unlike... And so we're much more likely to take a violent selection. Rather than worrying about having POWs and this kind of stuff, we can go do it without much much issue. Uh, but the other thing is, is that these things are so expensive that if they just find, like, pea shooters are knocking them out, like sort mm-hmm. of like how they did with the helicopters in Vietnam, mm-hmm. they start doing that, they'll just bankrupt us. 
They don't have to have superior technology. It's just that we've put so much expensive stuff, rather than having you know regular boots on the ground, mm-hmm. that will just collapse as an empire underneath our own expense. What I love is what I love is the fact that you know that's something we haven't talked about here, but the whole fact that like in Vietnam, what a lot of the a lot of the VC we're doing, we're, we're like shooting up things with big nets and stuff that got yeah. caught in the helicopter blades. And even even the guys on the ground were taught for everybody to lay on the ground and they would they would aim their guns in the air and use their feet to steady it and then shoot with their hands with their feet stuck up, cradling it, and they would just set up a barrage of bullets. It was like flak. Hmm. That's pretty cheap, and it evidently worked. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, there's just no way to protect the rotor of a helicopter. Yeah. From that sort no. of thing. You know, they they can they can make them pretty tough, but really, really, uh, you know, something just no. just above small arms. I've worked on helicopters. I've yeah. worked on them, and <clears throat> like the last wrenches. generations, they've tried to make them where they can do everything plus be stealthy and everything. And you're asking so much out of, you know, a helicopter, a high performance helicopter. Every pound you add. To the platform adds millions of dollars per helicopter. Sweet. Just in the overall cost of it so, its function. So you got to have dudes like jogging and making sure they don't get above a certain weight. Sort of. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, we, shave, I remember working on systems going helicopters where I had to shave ounces off. Just, you know, work, spend millions of dollars to shave ounces. Um, so it's just so high tech and there's just so little. The, the joke is always that helicopters were never meant to fly. Mm-hmm. Because they're just so incredibly unstable, that I have to just sneeze mm-hmm. at them, you know, and there they go. Mm-hmm. Although I guess if I had anything, if it to upgrade from the future mobile, I would like to maybe have a Chinook, mm-hmm. where they have those twin booms, you know, because you could actually have a small apartment inside the cavity of a Chinook. That'd be killer. And just go wherever you want to. If particularly if you had like an in-flight refueling boom, mm-hmm. you could just go sit down anywhere in the world you wanted to. It's like, hey, let's go have a party in Greenland, and we could just go land on the ice shelf, or that'd be cool, or, you know, just hop. So anyway, be okay. That there's a donate button on the front of Future Quake if anybody's interested. Somebody wants and, to get us the Chinook. Yeah, yeah, even an older one. I don't. Yeah. I don't mind refurbishing. You know. Yeah, but uh, it's okay. Anyway. All righty. Anything else on that story? Well, I mean, you know, he just sort of goes on and on. Uh... Hey, I'll, I'll I'll throw a couple more paragraphs at you. <clears throat> he says, it's also a great time to be a snake eater. Mm-hmm. Pentagon budget documents describe special operations forces as critical to U.S. and partner counterterrorism operations and a variety of other contemporary contingencies. In other words, whereas the military invaded and occupied troubled spots during the 2000s, it'll send commandos for discrete missions in the 2010s. More money is going into the Air Force Force's new long-range bomber, which won't always have a human in the cockpit. Interesting. Mm. Improved air-to-air missiles, probably to prepare for the day when China's stealth aircraft are a challenge. New jammers and communication gear, and even designing a conventional prompt strike option from submarines. Hmm. Hmm. Um, it's going to be a good time to manufacture powerful non-nuclear missiles. Even the most expensive defense program in history, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter Jet Family. Which I worked on, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. It's getting a mere haircut. After Panetta embraced the planes on Friday, the Pentagon says it'll merely slow Joint Strike Fighter procurement, even though weapons testing recently found to have 13 expensive new flaws. Yeah. So there you go. Um, It's a mess. 
right. unless you're unless you're a defense contractor. Right, right, and then you can make money on behalf of the American people. Every time I hear old Leon, every time I see Leon Panetta's name, I go back to the thing where he was demanding, you know, disclosure of aliens. <laughs> you know, I don't remember that. Yeah, I don't remember that. That's the one oh. I always remember it. All right, Leon Panetta. Well, uh, here's our prerequisite weirdness story, like the one with Wagner, you know, just got wet of the appetite. Um, and for some reason, I have lost the the uh, the link of where the story's from, but I'll have the link at futurequake.com where we normally put our story links for tomorrow's tremors. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember, everybody, all of our shows, <coughs> seven, seven years' worth, are under the past shows tab at futurequake.com. Mm-hmm. And so be sure and look under there. Um this story, the Capitol architect wanted to reanimate George Washington's dead body. Now, this was a story that was hinted to me by a couple of our, a couple different Futurian friends that all mentioned this to me, and then I bumped into it today, so I thought I'd have it on the show. Uh, it says, George Washington may be America's first president, but he was nearly America's first zombie in chief. What? If, if William Thornton, physician and designer of the U.S. Capitol, had had his way, Washington's body would have been subjected to a scientific experiment designed to bring the deceased former president back to life. In December 1799, 67-year-old George Washington took a ride through the wet winter rain and shortly afterward developed a fever and sore throat. When his condition became so bad that Washington could no longer swallow the concoctions of vinegar, molasses, and butter, which he was trying to treat himself, Washington called in his livestock and slave overseer, who drained three-quarters of a pint of blood from the ailing man. When bleeding failed to have the desired effect, three physicians were called in, all of whom recommended emetics, and you guessed it, more blood to be drawn. Over the brief course of his treatment, Washington's stomach and bowels were repeatedly evacuated, and the puncture-happy docks took nearly two and a half liters of blood. This is the kind of stuff you've recommended to me over the years. Similar ideas. Yeah, like had. eating healthy and stuff like that. Yeah. Get out and exercise. That's like <laughs> bloodletting. Ah! <laughs> just two I love days, my GMOs. Just two days after that fateful morning ride, Washington closed his eyes for the final time after telling his doctors, Are you done over there? I said, I die hard, but I'm not afraid to go. But Washington's body was not buried immediately after his death. The president may not have feared death, but he did fear being buried alive. Before he died, he commanded his secretary, Tobias Lear, to make sure that he would not be entombed less than three days after he died. In accordance with Washington's wishes, his body was put on ice until it could be moved to the family vault. That's where the story gets a little strange. The morning after Washington died, his step-granddaughter, Elizabeth Law, arrived with a family friend, William Thornton. History remembers Thornton as the architect who created the original design for the Capitol building. But he was also a trained physician, having studied at the University of Edinburgh. Although he did not practice medicine for much of his life, Thornton always had a keen interest in the workings of the human body, and he suggested a novel method for resurrecting the fallen warrior. Thornton told Washington's wife, Martha, that he wanted to thaw Washington's body by the fire and have it rubbed vigorously with blankets. Then he planned to perform a a tracheotomy, so he can insert a bellows into Washington's throat and pump his lungs full of air, and finally give uh, Washington an infusion of lamb's blood. Fr- Fran- what? Yeah. Fr- 
Friends and family declined Thornton's mad scientist offer, not because they thought his solution impossible, but because they felt the nation's first president should rest in peace. So what gave Thornton the idea to play Dr. Frankenstein? Susan Lederer, author of the book Flesh and Blood, Organ Transplantation and Blood Transfusion in 20th Century America, notes that many physicians in the late 18th century believed that lamb's blood had special properties and believes Thornton meant to give Washington's circulatory system a spark of vitality that might jolt him back to life. But Paul Schmidt, in his article Forgotten Transmusion Transfusion History, John Leacock of Barbados, published in the British Medical Journal, suggests that the University of Edinburgh might have been on the forefront of transfusion research, uh, unless you count all the transfusion experiments in 17th century France. Thornton wasn't the only Edinburgh alum thinking about blood transfusions during that time period. Philip Singe Physic, an earlier Edinburgh grad who initially practiced in Philadelphia, is reported to have performed a human blood transfusion as early as 1795. John Leacock, a later graduate, performed successful transfusion experiments, believing an infusion of blood would excite the recipient heart. Blood's experiments in turn influenced James Blundell, who is credited with introducing the process to the mainstream medical community. Schmidt wonders if the Edinburgh community took particular interest in those early French transfusion experiments planting the idea in Thornton's mind. Oddly, reanimation wasn't Thornton's only thwarted plan for Washington's body. Thornton secretly included a burial vault in his designs for the Capitol. Did you know that? No. Interesting. Hoping that it would be Washington's final resting place. After Washington's... Well, you know, there is that, there is that like, coffin there below the main Capitol building. From the, the main, the rotunda, yeah. underneath the rotunda, there's a, there's a coffin there. Right in the center of the room, and they say that I don't it's. Oh, I remember that. And they say that it's it's Washington's coffin, but he's I mean he's obviously not in there. Hmm. Okay. After Washington's coffin was placed in the family vault, Martha did agree that he could be later removed to the Capitol, on the grounds that her body would join his when she died. Alas, the transfer of burial chambers, like Zombie Washington himself, was not meant to be. Uh, the story discovered via Holly Tuck- Tucker's book, Blood Work, A Tale of Medicine and Murder in the Scientific Revolution, which details a series of blood transfusion experiments undertaken more than a century before Washington's death. So, there you go. I'm going to try to bring him back to life. I wonder what they thought about lamb's blood. Why, why was it? That's a good one, man. I like that. Um, one more? We can do one more if you okay. want. This is a good one. Is pregnancy unethical? Yes, says UK bioethicist. Okay. Here is contrarian bioethics at its best. Pregnancy and childbirth are so painful, risky and socially restrictive for women, that public funding should urgently be directed to the development of artificial wombs. Okay. (laughs) This is the only way to achieve true equality between men and women, for then neither women nor men would then be limited by having children and the burdens of reproducing the species would be shared equally. Hmm. Municipal hatcheries, brother. Wow. Got a baby hatchery down there. Hmm. Make sure we've got the water set to 78.2. Mm-hmm. We don't want the, hat- the hatchlings to die out. Wow. 
This is the radical suggestion made by leading British bioethicist Anna Smodgdor of the University of East Anglia. Something's wrong in the water over there. Yeah. Artificial gestation or ectogenesis is currently science fiction, but it may be possible. Dr. Smodgdor believes that in a truly liberal society, pregnancy and childbirth should not be tolerated. Not even that you should have the right to get put a baby in a municipal hatchery. It shouldn't be tolerated. Wow. That's awesome. So it would be like an illegal crime to have yeah. a natural baby. Yeah. Uh, pregnancy is barbaric, Smodgdor contends, an illness so serious that it is comparable to measles, which is also occasionally That's fatal. Nice but does not last nine months. Uh, she says, I suggest that there is a strong case for prioritizing research into ectogenesis as an alternative to pregnancy. I conclude by asking the reader to the, the following. If you did not know whether you would be a man or a woman, would you prefer to be born into society A, in which women bear all the burdens and risks of pregnancy, or society B, in which ectogenesis has been perfected? Her article in the Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics is a reply to a critique of an article which she published in 2007, The Moral Imperative for Ectogenesis. Man. How heartless. That's just so... What made you decide to use that music? Because it's just, it's like clown house in here, you know? You got these people saying, we shouldn't be having kids, it's unethical. Yeah. You know? It's like a clown house, man. It's not the normal way. Yeah, no, municipal hatchery is okay. Yeah. But, you know... It's not the natural way of having the byproduct of a union yeah. of a man and woman. No. Well, you know, doesn't that describe the last seven years of Tomorrow's Tremors? Clown house? Municipal hatchery? No. Uh, clown house? Yeah. You know? Yep. Well, somebody who's not a clown is Merv, who can tell our listeners how to contact us at FutureQuake. FutureQuake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. No, he's more of a disembodied head. Well, yeah, but a nice one with a nice voice. Yes. At least his vocal cords are attached. Yeah, that's uh, one thing I've never been able to figure out. Yeah. He still gets the job done. Yeah. Well, I think our job is done here. I think that's it. Mm-hmm. We're, we've put in a full show, even though it wasn't the intended show for tonight, mm-hmm. but... It was a good show. We got some slop out there for people to hear. Yep. You know, next week is our finale show, number three hundred. We're going from two ninety nine to three hundred, and it will be an extravaganza. The We've big three zero zero. Thousands of guests. We've got just this unending parade of mm-hmm. people dropping in. Josh our closest Gabor. friends. Yeah. yeah. Merv Griffin. Patrice uh, Lumumba. But uh, we're going to have a ton of people coming in. It's going to be. An extra long, I will be exhausted, probably just be carried out of the room after the future quake. It's going to be like, man, it's going to be like a James Brown show. It's going to be like yeah. people 
people having to put a cape over you, and then yeah. all of a sudden you're back yeah, at throw it. Throw it back off, come back to the mic. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, what I have to do is get this uh, room straightened out so we can put. Well, you gotta put everybody in this place. We gotta man. put eight chairs in here, just yeah. in studio, and then a whole bunch of special callers from around the globe, mm-hmm. literally, will be on our show next week for the finale show. Yep. And it will be something. You'll probably have to hear it in like four or five settings. Yeah. Our listeners. It's going to be heavy. Well, you know, my I'm going to pick up my uh, my new ride, you mm-hmm. know, the week after week after yeah. that. There's one more seat available if somebody wants to donate $20,000. All they have to do is donate $20,000 yeah, and they can me, ride with to you? me, yeah. Well, man, that's awful generous of you yeah. for doing that. You get to hang out with Robert Hyde and Brother yeah. Paul Babb. For just twenty grand. Yeah. Okay. I tried to get you to go, but cool. you didn't want to go. Paul's going? Yeah. Really? Yeah, man. Oh, you going by his house? You just picked no, him up along the way? No, San Jose, brother. Paul's going? Yeah. Cool. Well, that's cool. You could go, but, you know. Oh, man. That's a long story. I didn't know you'd hold me here right on live radio. Um, anyway, we got to go. Ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you, and we look forward to seeing you next week for our final show. Until then, we hope your future is always bright. Have a good day. I'll be designed.